0: Father in heaven, we come before you on this very frosty morning with snow covering everything. Reminiscent, Father, that we need your snow-white covering over our lives. Your righteousness, which is, is the, which is the only righteousness that you will ever accept is the righteousness of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We ask for that. We come before you so thankful for the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we wish to avail ourselves of that incredible sacrifice, that you will wash away our sin, that you'll cleanse us and purify us in that blood, and that you'll cover us, Lord, with with that precious covering of your righteousness. Lord, you know the topic today, and I feel very inadequate to present it. And Savior, uh, to the best of my understanding, I have tried to prepare myself for this message. But dear Lord, what we need is your presence. We pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon each one of us, Father, so that we can understand the import of this message, how it relates to us. There'll be some here today, there are some here today who will be hearing this for the very first time. Lord, you need to come alongside of them and translate for me that they will recognize your voice and not mine. And I pray, Lord, that truly you will give me the illustrations now that I will need that these truths may be better understood. Thank you again for your goodness and mercy for being our teacher. And may your angels now encompass us about and keep the evil one away and be with those who are yet traveling here. We thank you as we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So now we are going to move beyond the, the, the golden altar. I don't know if you can see that. I guess might have stuff in the way. The golden altar. And as we do, we encounter the, the veil, the curtain, that separated the holy place from the most holy. Holy place. This curtain was about a hand's breadth thick, actually, uh, the record tells us. And it was a gorgeous uh, covering. Uh, that curtain had beautiful colors of blue and purple and scarlet, and it had designs in it of angels that were woven in with uh, thread of gold and silver. And, and on the other side of this curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. It was the only furniture that was located inside the most holy place. And in, uh, the Ark of the Covenant actually was about a little more than three and a half inches long, a little more than two and a half feet wide and high. And like the other furnishings, it was designed for transportation. Uh, it was uh, made out of shittim wood, uh, the acacia wood, overcovered with gold inside as well as outside. But inside the Ark of the Covenant was uh, God's holy law. And it was that law that made that room the most holy place. Above the, the, uh, the Ark was a lid. On that lid stood two golden angels. And those angels, uh, in, in their position, we find in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 11, we find that one, the wings were, one wing was high and the other covered its body. They faced each other looking down upon that law, and their position was one of reverence. It it communicates to us uh, the attitude of the the angelic hosts, not only about God's throne, but about God's law, as well as God's plan to save humanity. The angelic hosts look upon it with reverence. In between uh, those angels um, was an area known as the mercy seat. And it was here that the visible presence of God was in the sanctuary. It was found here. Many times when the priest or, the, or Moses would communicate with God, they would be on, on one side of the curtain and God would communicate with them from the other side. I wanna share with you a story that, that is a rather interesting story. How many of you remember when the, when the Ark was captured by the Philistines, you remember that story? You remember that the, the Philistines, wherever they kept the ark, it was bad news for them. And uh, they realized they had to get rid of that ark. And uh, so they put it on an ox cart, you remember, and, uh, and, and the oxen took it to uh, the land of Israel. And they came to an area, one of the, of the tribes of Benjamin known as Beth Shemesh. And, and if you remember, when the Israelites saw it, they got real excited, and they had a, an offering and everything, and it was wonderful, and then they got a little disrespectful. Do you remember? They got a little curious. They wanted to know what was in the box. And they removed the lid, and do you remember what, what followed? 50,000 died at that very moment. I used to wonder what in the world that was all about. Let me tell you what that was all about. The only thing that stood between them and that law was mercy. And when they removed the mercy, the inevitable sin, the, the, the inevitable event took place. The wages of sin is? We need that mercy, don't we, friends? We want to keep that mercy there. Now, as the years passed, or the as the years passed later on, they would add manna into that ark, and that manna was to be a reminder to the children of Israel that it was God who provided for their needs. Then later, they added Aaron's rod, his crook, in there, and you remember that rod was added as a result of rebellion that broke out in Israel, when a number stood up to oppose. Uh, The the priests that God had selected, uh, the men God had selected to be the priests in Israel, they defied God's authority. And so that rod was put there as a reminder to Israel not to rebel against the authority that God has set up. Are you with me? But but for now, we're going to focus on uh, initially what was found in that ark, and our study is going to be there today. I hope you have your lessons with you. I'm sure you do. And we're going to look now on question number one and find out what was in the ark. And in Exodus 25, 11, it says, But you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. This is very significant because The whole purpose of the ark was to be a box for God's law. You know, people out there today are searching for the lost ark. But the only significance of the ark was that it was just a container. It was a box. What really mattered, what was in the box, and it's in our Bibles today. We don't have to go looking into the hills of Judea for the lost ark because the significance wasn't the box, it's what was in the box. And it's also very important to note the location of, that, of, that, of those 10 commandments. They were located directly underneath the mercy seat. There's a message there, my friends. It is the law of God that is the foundation of his throne. That mercy seat represented the throne of God because above it was the presence of God in the midst of angels. And this box was symbolic. That area was symbolic of of the sanctuary in heaven where the throne of God is, where his presence is, and where the angels are. Does this make sense? And so that Ark of the Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, was a container, a box for God's law that stood under his throne, reminding us that it was the foundation of his throne. By the way, that ark, that covenant, was the agreement between God and Israel that made Israel his children and made God their God. Are you with me? Very, very significant. Let's take a look at uh, Deuteronomy 10. 4 and 5, it says, And he, referencing God, wrote on the tablets according to the first writings, because if you remember, the first ones were broken when Moses came down off of Sinai. The 10, the what? The Ten Commandments, which the Lord has spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me, then I turned, that's Moses speaking, then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I have made, and there they are just as the Lord commanded me. Let's open our Bibles, I just want to flesh this out a little more because this is extremely important to us. Let's open to the book of Exodus, and we're going to take a look at chapter 31. Exodus 31, if you're there, say amen. Amen. And we're going to look at verse 18. It says, And when he, uh, God, had made an end of speaking with him, Moses, on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Let's look at another text i uh, move over here uh, to chapter 32, and uh, we're gonna, I'm going to read verse 16. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on tablets. You know, it, it blows my mind when you stop to think about it, but when you look at the whole Bible, the Bible is the Holy Bible, but there's only one portion where God himself wrote and this is it it's the only place where God wrote this is extremely significant because the whole book is our lifeline is it not and but yet this one section God didn't leave for anyone to write he wrote it himself you think that maybe God's trying to communicate something to us Is is he trying to communicate? God wanted to make sure that no one in the future would say, oh, Moses wrote that. Well, God wanted to make sure that everybody knew, no, I wrote that. Very important. Something is being communicated to us here. I want you to imagine for a moment, you know, we have a number that are going off to, uh, to mission fields, and we've sent a number. But I want you to imagine right now if you had a son or a daughter out in the mission field, out in a third world country. In fact, it was a country that you're from. You know, we just took a group uh, last spring to Cuba, and that's where my family's from. But I want you to imagine you, you took your, you, your, your, your son or your daughter, went as missionaries to a country overseas where you're from. And then all of a sudden you learn that the government turned over, and that now uh, there are mobs going through the country killing foreigners. You realize your child's life is in danger, you got to get your child out of there. And so, you, you go and you, you go to your secretary and you say to your secretary, I want you to send a message to my child. And as you're, you're, you're speaking, the secretary is dictating uh, the message. And, you're, and basically it's this, my child, your life is in danger, the government has turned over, Uh, and uh, mobs are going through the cities and in the villages, and they're killing all foreigners. Your life is imperiled. Uh, You have got to get out. I know the way out. And if you follow my instructions exactly as I give them to you, you will be able to get out with your life. Here are the instructions. Now I'm going to push pause. Parent, are you going to trust that your secretary is going to dictate those instructions perfectly? or at that moment you're gonna tell your secretary to step aside, you're taking over. Are you with me? God wanted to make sure that we got this the way he wrote it. This is vital to us. That's the message in that God wrote it with his finger. Are you with me? All right, let's continue here. Uh, What we're gonna be focusing from this part on now is God's Holy Ten Commandments. What we're going to learn is that God's law is a transcript of his character. It reveals him. I've actually heard people argue that that's not true. That is crazy. Friend, how many here have rules in your house? Those rules reveal something about you. It tells you what you value. If I went to your house and you told me, excuse me, if you could take off your shoes, you just told me something about your carpet. You don't want dirt on it. Are you with me? Every rule we have reveals something about ourselves. It tells us what we value. It tells us what's important to us. It reveals something about us. God's Ten Commandments are a revelation of who He is. It reveals what matters to him. It's a transcript of his character. It's very interesting, by the way. If you turn to the last sheet of your handout, you're going to notice something really interesting, and you can go home and do a little research. But it's a comparison between God's law and God. It's the attributes the, what this reveals is that the what the Bible reveals that the attributes that describe God also describe His law. That God is love. That He is perfect, holy, eternal, truth, pure, good, spiritual, just, faithful. That He is light, life. Righteous, true, peace, honorable, great, wonderful, the way, sure, unchanging, wise, enlightenment, blessed, happiness, merciful, understanding, delight, liberty, knowledge, hope, and our meditation. And it's interesting that all of that is also used to describe God's law. Because God's law is a revelation of who God is. It's a revelation of who He is. Now I have here, Ten Commandments, it's abbreviated. But um, the first one, uh, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So this law tells me that, that God is the highest authority in my life. That's, what, that's the first thing. And by the way, it tells me, by the way, that God wants me to respect authority. Okay, God respects authority, but he's reminding us he's, he's the top one. Are you with me? Number two is that you shall have uh, not to make an image of God. God asks us not to make an image of him. And what he's saying is, look, there is nothing in this universe that's like me. There's nothing in this universe that's like me. And if you try to make an image of me, your concept of me is going to be reduced. So God says, don't make an image of me. Do not make it. Uh, The third thing that the law tells us is to respect his name, and that tells us he is a respectful being. Number four gives us context. Number four is 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 the one that talks about the Sabbath, and in there it tells us he's the one that created us. So it makes sense that he is the highest authority. It makes sense that we're to respect his name. It makes sense that we're not to make an image of him because he created everything. So it's very interesting, by the way, if you ever want to do a very fascinating Bible study, find out the basis of worship for heaven and earth, and you're going to find it's because he's our creator. Just do the research. Just study it. It's because of this. So it's this commandment that actually reveals to us our relationship to this being. And then if you look at number five, Uh, it tells us to honor our our parents. And so God is a God that wants us to respect the family unit. He wants us to respect authority. By the way, by respecting our parents, we learn how to respect authority, and ultimately we learn how to respect God. So very important. So it tells us that this is a God that, that respects authority. Then number six tells us not to kill. What does this tell us about God? That he values life. He values life and he wants us to value life. And then if we take a look at number seven, um, thou shalt not commit adultery. God values the family. God wants us to be pure. This tells me that he is pure and that he values the family. Number eight, uh, it, we find that it says thou shalt not steal. This tells me that God respects boundaries. Hey, if you have not, if you, did, if you came from a dysfunctional home, you know how important it is to respect boundaries. You know how valuable that is. Well, God wants us to respect boundaries. Guess what? God also respects boundaries. That's why we have the freedom of choice. And then number nine, don't bear a false witness. That tells me that God values honesty. He wants me to value honesty. And then number 10, thou shalt not covet. Uh, This tells me that God wants me to be content with what I have. Tells me that God is content with what he has. The Ten Commandments, my friends, is a revelation of who this God is. And without this, we have no idea. He's just one amongst many. But this tells us who he is. Take a look at the note right below that uh, section. It says this. In this study, we will learn that Satan hates God's law. One of the subtle ways that he has sought to discredit God's law has been through the suggestion that since we are saved by grace, we no longer need to keep God's law. How many of you have heard that? But is salvation by grace a license to sin? That's the question. What does the Bible teach regarding this? Um Let's take a look. By by the way, I do do need to say this. I'm going to take a little detour here. Do you realize that if you look at the Ten Commandments, there's only two things in there that God asks us to do? There's only two. There's eight things he asks us to stay away from. And there's only two things he asks us to do. Keep the Sabbath, honor your parents. And the other eight, he says, stay away from these things. They're going to rob you of your happiness. There's only two things he asks us to do. Amazing. Amazing. And yet people try to tell us that this law is a burden. Really? Let's study a little more. Number two, uh, what is sin? Let's find the biblical definition for sin. Can we do that? Not Pastor Baute's definition or the churches down the street definition. Let's find out what the Bible definition is. And we find it in 1 John 3, 4. It says, sin is the transgression of the law. There is your biblical definition for sin. It's the violation of that law that is the foundation of God's government. You know, there isn't a government, any government that, is, uh, that has any authority has it because it has law. All governments are founded on law. Every government. There isn't a government out there that says, you can... Do whatever you want. That government won't stand. Every government stands on law, and the government of God stands on law, His law. Now, you remember we did a study a while back where we took a look at the rebellion that took place in heaven. Do you remember that? All right, if you remember that, please say amen. Okay, I'm encouraged. All right, open your Bibles to the book, uh, to 2 Peter. I want to show you something. Second <clears throat> Peter, and we're going to look at chapter 2. Okay, quick quiz. What is sin? Whose law? Okay, that, that's the definition, right? Now that you have, you've decoded what sin is, watch this text carefully. We're picking up on uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to begin in verse 2. It says, and many will follow their destructive way. Well, let's pick up, uh, okay, let's pick up at one. This is interesting because we were talking about how people are preaching that the law is done away with. Let's pick up at one. It says, but there, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among who? So who is, this, who, who is Peter writing to here? The church, you and I, he's warning us. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bringing on them themselves swift destructions, number two. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth is blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you in dece- deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has been idle, but their destruction does not slumber. Now, here we go. We're kicking it in to high gear here. Verse 4. But if God had not spared the angels who sinned, stop right there. The angels who what? What sin? What did these angels do? They transgressed God's law. That was the rebellion. The rebellion in heaven, dear friends, was over God's law. You just read it. Are you with me? But God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down uh, to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, he didn't spare it, why? Because they also rebelled. But save Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of of the ungodly, and turning the city of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Why? For the same reason they rebelled against God's law. Condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live how? Ungodly. The wages of sin is? Sin is the transgression of? Is this making sense? Sin, dear friends, is rebellion against God's law. And if the angels of heaven rebelled against the government of God and were removed, are we so foolish as to think that we're going to be rebelling and going in? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And until we get this, we're not going to understand the need of the cross of Jesus Christ. We've got to understand this before we begin to recognize the need of the cross. Let's take a look now at number three. Which law is it that points out our sin? This is, uh, Paul is about to flesh this out for us. Romans 7 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law a bad thing? Paul answers, What? Certainly not. Let me pause right here. Friends, remember a while back I shared with you that Paul's writings are hard to understand? And whenever somebody tries to undo scripture, they usually use Paul's writings to do it with? Paul is the main writer that many use to say that the law has been done away with. We're going to hear from Paul today and see if he actually teaches that. What happens is some things are hard to understand, and I get that because I've had my struggles with Paul. But if you study the rest of the scriptures, if what you're studying with Paul is contradicting the rest of scripture, then you've got to know you're misunderstanding Paul. Okay? And we studied about that earlier. We talked about it earlier. But watch what he says here. Shall we say then, is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary. I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said... You shall not covet. Now, the reason why Paul is being specific here is because the Jews by this time had so many different laws. There was confusion. If you just said law, they wouldn't know which one you were talking about. So Paul was specific, and he made sure that they understood he was talking about the Ten Commandments. It is the Ten Commandments that God has given to us to point out sin. Very, very good. Let's take a look now at number four. Is grace an excuse for sin? Romans 6, uh, verse 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Paul said that after being in bondage, after recognizing what what what, what sin cost heaven to save you and me, how now are we gonna continue to sin? Does that sound like somebody that's against the law? Congregation said? No. He was not. I want you to imagine. I'll, let's use this as an illustration. Uh, sadly, this week, uh, I was looking in the newspaper, and a man was executed for his crime. He was tried and, uh, and was executed. But, you know, in this country, we have kind of an interesting uh, uh, tradition that when a president is leaving, before he leaves office, he pardons somebody who's on death row. And um, so imagine, if you will, this man who has committed awful crimes against society, took the lives of people, and then the president is about to leave office and so pardons him, okay? So this person now is free. But are they free to continue to break the law and to do what got them on death row in the first place? You would hope, one would hope that in a heart welled up with gratitude, recognizing that they should have died and instead have been given a second chance, that now they will live a life in harmony with the law. Does that make sense? And that's what Paul is saying. How can we, now after we've been saved by grace, now go back and break the law? That is what Paul is saying. Grace is not an excuse for sinning. It is not an excuse for rebelling. Grace does not abolish law. You know, I grew up in L.A., and at night, at night, the police would not come into my neighborhood unless there was a whole bunch of them. You would not see one or two squad cars in my neighborhood because it wasn't safe for them. If, if they came into my neighborhood, and it was rare, there was a whole bunch of them that would come. Law wasn't very highly esteemed in my neighborhood. In fact, when we were growing up, and, and, and Dr. John, if we were too lazy to go to the dump to drop off a TV set that didn't work, we knew just to leave it on the porch. The next day, it was gone. We didn't live in that neighborhood very long before we knew he didn't leave anything outside. It, and, and so if we didn't want something, that's how we'd get rid of it. We just left it out there. It disappeared. You do not want to live somewhere where there is no law. It is not safe. Our God, friends, is a God of order. He is intelligent. There isn't a nation out there that would do away with its own laws. And for us to think that God would do that is um, very demeaning. God would not do that. God is a God of order. Let's take a look at number five. What is the purpose of God's law? Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge, is the what? The knowledge, the knowledge of sin. So it is with the law that we come to, to understand what is sin. We come to understand what is right and what is wrong. The law is a tool that's very important to us. I want you to look at the note right below that. I want to just read that first sentence and then we're going to stop there. The law does not save. The law does not save. It only reveals the sinner's need for a... Savior! The law will not save you. It only reveals that you need a Savior. The devil is ingenious. If he does away with the law, he also does away with your need for a... He's brilliant. He came in through the back door. He found a way to nullify the cross. And I can still call myself a Christian. Isn't that interesting? My friends, the law is very important to God because the law reveals to us our sin so that we will run to a Savior from sin. Is this beginning to ring bells? Is this making sense? I hope so. And I pray as we go along, it'll continue to. Let's continue with the reading. So the law does not save. It only reveals the sinner's need for a Savior. The law does not justify, nor does it cleanse. It only shows our need of cleansing. It is God's great, what? Mirror, reflecting the sinner's need of Jesus for cleansing and redemption. That's the role of the law. Open your Bibles. Let's take a look at James, the book of James, chapter 1. This is a very interesting book. Uh, This book uh, is actually written by one of the brothers of Jesus. And, um, and this book is a response to some teaching that was taking place in the early church that what we did as Christians didn't matter. Antinomialism, I believe is how it's pronounced. Gnosticism. And so James is actually confronting this. And so watch what James does here in James chapter 1. And I'm going to begin... In verse 21. If you're there, say amen. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of... Let me stop right there. What is James equating the law to? A freedom. Did you catch that? He doesn't. There are people out there who call it bondage. But James called it freedom. Not only that, but he compares it to a mirror. It reveals God. It also reveals me. But he who looks in the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he he does. So he is calling it the law of liberty. Let me illustrate how this works. All right. You see that? I, um, I have a problem. I have two problems. One is I got this stain on my face, and secondly is I don't see it. Now you see it. Isn't it funny, by the way? And this represents sin. Isn't it funny how we can always tag out everybody else's deal, but we can't see our own? Yeah. So I can't, I can't recognize my own problem, but I can see it in others, right? But as I am looking into God's holy word and I'm looking at his law, suddenly I become aware I have a problem, okay? And so James is saying that's what the law is. It's a mirror to show us our condition. But can I use the mirror to get rid of this? No. It will not take away what I am seeing, so then, Pastor, what do you do? Take a look at number six. How can the Christian be cleansed? In 1 John 1 7, it says, The what? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from what? From all sin. And so, as I then see my problem in the law, I reach for the blood of Christ, that amazing grace. And with it, then, I cleanse myself of sin. Not cleanse myself, I ask him to cleanse me of my sin. Does that make sense? So, so the law's job is to direct me to the solution to my problem. That's its job. You do away with the law, and you have done away with the solution. So important, dear friends, for us to remember that. Let's look at the note right below number six. It says, Only through Jesus can people receive cleansing. The Bible is very clear that people are not saved by law-keeping. They are saved solely by the blood of Jesus Christ. He cleanses, and then he provides the power to live a life of obedience. The devil hates God's law because it makes us aware that we need a Savior from sin. Thus, God's holy law shows people their need of cleansing, but it cannot cleanse. Only Jesus can. Does that make sense? No mirror, no sense of our need of Jesus. I remember years ago, a friend of mine said to me, George, you'll never be saved by keeping God's law. And you'll never be saved if you don't. We're going to unravel that here today. We're going to unravel that. But, but God's law, God, God asks us to keep it. We're, and then he gives us the power to do it. You know, it's really interesting. I remember one day I was, I was driving in the car with a family member, a relative. And this relative was really giving me a hard time. They claimed to be Christian. And they knew that i believe that god's ten commandments are still effective today and he just kept mocking me regarding that can you imagine he just kept mocking me and i put up with it and i put up with it and i put up with it and then there came a point that i was done with it and i said lord i've had him up to here i said i love this person you know i do but what they're saying i'm tired of so will you please give me something for him so I looked at him and I, and, uh, <laughs> and I said, you know, I want to ask you a question. And he swallowed hard because he knew that I had had it. I mean, I didn't show anger, but he, he was afraid. You know, truth loses nothing by investigation. Error does not like to be investigated. So I said, I want to ask you some questions. And he kind of looked out of the corner of my eye. And I said, uh, you say you love God. Is that true? He said, yes. You love Jesus? Yes. Did you know why Jesus hung on the cross for you? Because of your sin. The Bible says that sin is the transgression of the law. Because you and I transgressed the law, he had to come down here, be humiliated, and murdered to save us. Now, I love him. Why would I want to continue doing the very thing that caused him his death? Now, you claim to love him, yet you don't have any problem continuing to do the things that hurt his heart and caused his death. I have a problem with that. And that's why his law means something to me. And you know, that brother didn't bring that up anymore. That was the end of it. I was hoping to get him to to think, to think. Take a look at number seven. How then are people saved? Isn't that the big question? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, least anyone should boast. Grace is unmerited favor. You've probably heard that before. What does that mean? It means that you could never earn it. What does that mean? That means that grace can only be extended to a guilty person. I don't know that you got that. You, You cannot extend grace to a person who has earned it. You can't. I remember an incident that took place in history. Many of you remember Napoleon Bonaparte, the the great dictator, I guess, if you can say that, at least the well-known dictator of France. And and his goal was to conquer Europe. And one of the reasons why he was so successful is he introduced a new strategy into the warfare of the day. And back then, if you remember, these guys would just kind of line up their, their riflemen, and then the other riflemen will ride up, and they just kind of take shots at each other. I don't know who came up with this as the way to do combat, but, but anyway, they just line up and start shooting each other. Napoleon said, forget that, he just got his guys and said, storm them. And so he would get his troops to charge the line of riflemen, and so the line of reasoning was that he could throw more guys at them than they, they can put lead in the air. That was the strategy, it was a simple strategy. Over, over, overrun them, overpower them. So he was winning battles left and right until somebody adjusted. But he was winning. Now, the strategy's great unless you're one of the front line of Napoleon's troops. That's kind of a little rough on you, run, charging guns and bullets. And so many times, the men deserted. Now, you know in times of war, if there's desertion, what is the penalty for that? is death, it's execution. And so there was a young man, one of Napoleon's troops, who did desert, and uh, he was captured, he was tried, and it was found that he did desert, and he was sentenced to be executed. His mother, um, it turns out that this, this young man was actually the only son of a widow. And the mother figured out where, what had happened and where Napoleon's headquarters were, and she went to him and asked for mercy. And Napoleon said, he's not getting mercy, and sent her away. The next day, this mother returned and asked for an audience with the emperor. And she asked for mercy. And he said, he's not getting mercy, and sent him away. And this happened day after day after day after day, like the impromptu widow. This woman was doing the same thing. Well, the day came when Napoleon had had enough of this lady. She showed up again and she again bowed at his feet and said, sire, please have mercy. Finally, he got up, looked at her and said, woman, your son does not deserve mercy. And she said to him, true sire, if he did, it wouldn't be mercy. And he just looked at her and let the boy go. Mercy can only be extended to a guilty person. Mercy is something that can never be earned. It is a gift. That is what God extended to us. Does this make sense? This text says, For by grace, by mercy, you have been saved through faith, by believing it. And that not of yourselves. In other words, there was nothing you earned. It is the gift of God, not of what? It's not of works. It is not possible, my friends, for you and I... Do you realize it is not possible for you and I to be saved by works? And and I'm going to share with you why. We have here a number of medical people. Okay? And uh, I have here a clamp, a surgical clamp. All right. If I'm about to do surgery... All right, I have this all bundled up. If I'm about to do surgery, I unfold this, and what is this called? Steril. A sterile field, right? And because we know that in surgery, one of the most dangerous things to a patient is germs, contamination by germs. And so this instrument has been through a process of sterilization, and so this is called a sterile field. Is it sterile now? No. Can it be used for surgery now? No. But listen, put your thinkers on. Can't it still perform? It has the functions. It can still perform. What's the problem? It's contaminated. Everything it touches is contaminated. It's going to cause problems. So for this instrument then to be able to be used in surgery again, what's going to happen? It has to be sterilized. Can the clamp sterilize itself? It needs a source outside of itself to sterilize it so that its works can be accepted. You see, you and I have a fallen nature. We, 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 by, defo- by, by default, what we do is motivated by selfishness naturally now. So the only way that that can change is if a source outside of us cleanses us and changes this heart so that our motives are different. Does this make sense? That's why you can never be saved by works. You and I cannot change ourselves. It has to be through God's work in us if we will allow it. That's the only way By accepting the gift of God, his grace, and allow him to do his work in our lives. Let's take a look at the note right below number seven. The New Testament is crystal clear. People are saved solely by believing and accepting what Jesus did and is doing for them. That's called grace. Law-keeping and good works are the result of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, but never a means of obtaining That saving relationship. That's a powerful statement. It's not a means. Obedience is not a means of salvation, of of obtaining salvation. It's actually an expression of love and gratitude. That's what obedience really is. You know, when I was young, I I was a troubled young person, and I caused my teachers a lot of grief. Um but I had some teachers that were very kind to me. Uh, I can think of two right now, Mr. Doc, uh, Mr. William Tappa from South Africa and uh, Miss Alice Garcia. They treated me with such respect. In spite of the fact that I was such a schmuck, they were kind to me. They went out of their way. You know what that did for me? My attitude towards them changed. And I made every effort possible to not give those two teachers any problems. I didn't do right in an effort to earn their affections. Their affections were already given to me when I was rotten. And as a result, it awakened within me love and gratitude towards them. My friend, love awakens love. That is the motive for obedience, and we're gonna see that a little bit more. Let's take a look and uh, at at salvation in the old testament um this is really significant for us because there are there are well-meaning people out there that teach that in the old testament god had one way of reaching people and saving them but in the new testament he has a new he he found a different way to do it by the way can you imagine those conversations in heaven how did you get here works how about you grace oh wow i was born in the wrong era what a drag wish i'd been born in your day it was rough in my, t- in my part of the world. Can you imagine that those kinds of conversations? By the way, what, what, what would that say of God? You know, God said, well, let's see, let's try saving them this way. Ooh, that didn't work. Let's try this instead. What does that say about God? What an insult. No, dear friends, God has only one way of saving sinners. And we're going to see in the Old Testament, as in the New, it was the same way from the beginning. Let's take a look at the note right below this section here. It says, the New Testament makes clear that God saves people by grace and expects them to live a life of obedience because they have a relationship with him. Many people have not realized that the Old Testament teaches exactly the same concept. In both Testaments, God's people are saved by grace through faith, and then, because he has redeemed them, they will keep his law. Let's take a look at number eight. Did God enter into a, oh, this is an amazing, this is a mind blower. Did God enter into a covenant with Israel, of which the law was its foundation, before or after he redeemed them from Egypt? This is really significant. In other words, did their relationship, did it initiate based off works or off grace? That's the question. Let's take a look at Exodus verse 20. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This is a. This is not, Let's look at the next one before I start elaborating. Uh, Exodus nineteen four and five. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What's the next word? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, isn't it interesting? When does he ask for obedience? Before they leave Egypt or after? After he leaves, they leave Egypt, then he asks for obedience. You know why? Because when they were in Egypt, they couldn't obey. Pharaoh wouldn't let them. Pharaoh represents Satan, friends, who was controlling God's people and would let them go. But God sent a deliverer to set them free. And he doesn't ask for obedience until after they are Free! Because now they can obey. And before you and I come to the Lord Jesus, you and I, if we do the right things, it's for the wrong reasons. And if we want to do them for the right reasons, we can't. But when we come to Jesus, he gives us the power to obey. I want to I share with you another incident uh, like this uh, recorded for us in Scripture. Open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. This is really neat imagery, but we're going to see this idea repeated again. The Book of Zechariah, and uh, we're going to go to chapter three. Uh, a little historical background: The children of Israel have left Babylon. They're going to the. They've been. They're going to the Promised Land, uh, and um, you know, there's discouragements there in building the wall and whatnot. And uh, Zechariah was a prophet of the Lord, and he sends a message to Joshua. And at this time, Joshua is the high priest. Uh, in uh, in Israel in, Ju- in in Jerusalem, and so he sends him a message. Watch carefully what takes place here, and I am going to begin in verse one. Then he showed me Joshua. This is uh, the Lord. Then he, the Lord, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Did you did you catch that? Standing before who? This is real significant. Those of you who have a new King James Bible the scholars try to help you out here the the letter a in angel is a capital or small case it's capital what are they communicating this is christ Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the lord and satan standing at his right hand to oppose him amazing imagery and the lord said to satan the lord rebuke you satan the lord Who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you? Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Pause. What what is what's what's filthy garments? His His sin, his unrighteousness. The Bible tells us that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. So here's this guy clothed in his own righteousness, which is filth, and was standing before the angel. Capital A again. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Now the angel speaks take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. What rich rich robes are those? Christ's righteousness. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by then. You see that word now in verse 6? Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts, and I will give you places to walk amongst those who stand here. When did the command to obey come? After they were redeemed. Does this make sense? Because before that, we don't have the power, the ability, or even the desire to change. And I remember, I think I shared the story here when I was young, that I had a lot of questions in my mind. I was a big thinker. And uh, my, my friends, <laughs> every once in a while, would open up and just share what was in my mind, and they're like, really? You think like that? But I would wrestle with things, things that dealt with God, and and I had these perplexing questions in my mind. And um, I, would, I would sometimes corner a youth pastor and just nail them with some of my questions and watch these guys squirm. They couldn't answer. After a while, it became a sport for me. And, uh, and I, would, uh, I, I would make these guys uh, squirm and until one guy, and I don't know if I shared the story here, forgive me if I am repeating myself. But his name was uh, Roger Kuhn. He was a youth pastor. We were in Wawona. Some of you smiled. you know who he is? Oh, good. Some of you are smiling. Well, maybe. hope you know who he is. If you see him, tell him his efforts on my behalf were not in vain. <laughs> but uh, so we're in Camp Wawona. It was nighttime. We're all, all our guys were all in bunks, and he was in his bunk. And he was, a, he was on one side of the room, I was in the other. And I start firing off my questions on poor Pastor Kuhn. And unlike the others... I could tell that his attempts to answer me were coming from the very depths of his heart. It wasn't something rote or plastic, (laughs) it was real, but I was nailing him left and right, and I can hear the desperation in his voice. Finally, he got quiet, and he said to me, George, you have asked some really good questions, but if you really want the answers, they're gonna be found in your Bible. But if you won't search your Bible to find the answers, then what you're doing is playing a game and i'm not playing with you anymore and i remember that night i just lay there in the night and i thought you know he is right he is right one day i'm going to read that bible and i'm going to get my answers for myself but uh, but i but i put a caveat to it that messed me up i will first clean up my life before i begin to read it and the years passed and the years passed my life was a mess Finally, one day when I really did want a relationship with God, I said to the Lord, I cannot change me. If you want me, you're going to have to take me the way I am and I give you permission to change me. And brothers and sisters, that's how the gospel works. That is how the gospel works. Let's take a look. Uh, where am I? Oh, wait, I got to show you this text. This is an amazing text. For those that say that God saved in the Old Testament by works, look at this. Jeremiah 31.2, thus says the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found what? They found grace in the wilderness. Even who? Israel. God has only one way of saving people, and it's by grace through faith. That is the only way. Okay, next one, number nine. Oh, let's look at the note right below eight first. Notice how clearly God spells it out. The reason why Israel was asked to obey was an outgrowth of the fact that God had already what? Redeemed them from bondage. Nowhere does Scripture say, give any indication that God ever asked people to obey as a condition of redemption. He first of all redeems them, then he asks for their obedience. So first I ask Jesus into my heart and now I have the power to obey. If that makes sense, please say amen. Okay, number nine. What is the Old Testament motive for obeying? Okay, you want to hear the Old Testament motive for obeying? Deuteronomy 6 5 and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and these words which I command you today shall be in your. Do you realize that is the new covenant? That God is going to write his laws. That's what Paul tells us in Hebrews 8.10, that he's going to write those laws in our heart. That's the new covenant. And when he writes them in our heart, we're going to be obeying, which means we're going to be in harmony with, with the law, with God. We're going to be in harmony with him. And by the way, this, 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 this verse right here, do you remember when Jesus was asked, the, the, the religious leaders of his day were trying to trick him, and they asked him, what's the most important law? Do you remember that? This was his response. You shall love the Lord your heart, your Lord your God with all your might, all your strength, and then your neighbor as yourself. He was quoting the Old Testament. The only acceptable motive for obedience as far as God is concerned is love. That is the only one. Let's take a look at number 10. Was Old Testament religion a legalistic religion? Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. Pause. Where did he show you what was good? In the law. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, do what's right. And to love mercy, treat others the way I've treated you. And to walk humbly with your God. In other words, you have nothing to brag about. The transformed life that you are now living is because of me. It's not because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. Does that make sense? Does that sound like legalism to you? People, you know, when you make an effort to serve God, people are going to accuse you of being a legalist. By the way, how many of you have had that experience already? When you try to serve God and obey God, you're going to be called a legalist. I want to ask you a question. Did Jesus, does the Bible record say that Jesus obeyed his Father in all things? Was he a legalist? No. No, because love is the motive for true obedience. Obedience is not legalism. Do you want to know what legalism is? Legalism is about motive. Why are you obeying? Are you obeying because you're afraid of getting uh, the punishment? Huh? You're looking for fire insurance? Are you obeying because of the consequences and not because it's the right thing to do? Are you obeying because you're trying to save yourselves so you can earn heaven? Then it is legalism. But if you're obeying because you love God, that is not legalism, that's loyalism. That is loyalism. There is an enormous difference. It's all about love. You know, I <clears throat> it's really tragic one of the things that that happens a lot today is women get caught up, and I guess this happens to men too, but by and large to women, they get caught up in a relationship that's abusive. And, uh, and women get abused. As a pastor, I, I, I unfortunately see that a lot. Okay? And so I'm going to share with you a story about this gal who uh, was dating this fellow who was uh, a Marine. He was a Marine uh, sergeant. In fact, he was a drill sergeant over at the base, and they start to date. Now, you already know how I feel about dating, right? I've shared that with you. Uh, dating very often is uh, is a scam. It's 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 an act of deception, because people always put out their their best at first, right? Okay, I think there's a way to do it right. And I want to write a book on it. I'm not kidding you either. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm I really want to do that because of all the suffering I see in relationships. But anyway, this gal married this guy, and she really didn't know what he was like until she signed the dotted line. Then when she got in the the, uh, the the relationship in the marriage, it turned out this guy was really controlling. He was very unkind to her. In fact, what he used to do, he would have a checklist. He had a clipboard before he went to work that day. He left a clipboard of everything he expected her to get done that day. And when she when he came home, he inspected to make sure she had done it. You know, he'd get the white glove and run it on, on top of, of the bookcase and everything else. And if she had done 99% of the things right and one thing wrong, he would just light into her. And that happened day after day, week after week, month after month. I want to ask you a question. What do you think happened to her love? He killed it. It was oppressive. Well, being that he was in the military, they were out in some exercises, an accident took place, and the man lost his life. This woman now found herself free and she vowed, I will never marry again. never. And so she ended up working somewhere where she was in contact with uh, the, the community. It may have been a floor shop, don't remember exactly. And there was a guy that would frequent her store where she worked, and he was very kind, very kind man, very gentle in the way he spoke to her and, uh, and she would watch him the way he interacted with others and uh You know, and he was nice to other people, too. And this went on for months and years. And the day came they they struck up a friendship, and then that friendship deepened, and uh, and then it became romantic. And the very thing she thought she would never do, she did. She remarried, and this man turned out to be very kind to her. He was very respectful of her. He was uh, very gentle with her. So anyway, they had been married for some time. She was at home working on something, and then she realized she needed something that she saw a while back in the attic. And so she climbed up in the attic, was looking around, and as she did, she bumped into an old box. How many of you have memory boxes at home? I have one. And it was a memory box. And she thought, oh, mercy, I haven't opened this thing up in years. I wonder what's inside. And when she opened it up, there on the very top was one of those lists. And her stomach just lurched. It went in the nuts. I mean, her blood pressure was going up. She, she clenched her fists. She grit her teeth. She, the, all of the memories came back. And she was just looking at that piece of paper, and, and she said to herself, wash the dishes. I wash the dishes t- now. Mow the lawn. I mow the, mul- the lawn now. Dust cooked the favorite meal as she went down the list she was doing all of that for her new husband without needing a list without being told without the threat of reprisal because now she was doing it out of a heart filled with with love that is the motive that is acceptable to god for obedience Number 11, was the new birth experience also an Old Testament experience? Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, watch this, gang. Was was the Old Testament salvation through faith by grace? Was there an Old Testament version of the new birth? Watch this, Ezekiel 36, 26, 27. This is God speaking. I will give you what? A new heart. And I will put what in you? A new spirit, that's the Holy Spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and what? And cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments, and what? And do them. This is the new covenant in the Old Testament. Isn't that awesome? God only has one way of saving us. When I hear people say, God's law cannot be obeyed, They are echoing the voice of the prince of darkness. They are echoing his slithering voice because Jesus made it very clear, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through Christ who strengthens me, I can do all things. In order to serve God, my friends, we have to have that new heart. God has only one plan of salvation. Let's take a look at number 12. Therefore, are the Ten Commandments binding for the New Testament Christian? Now, right here, I constrained myself to four verses. I could have put a whole slew. Therefore, are the Ten Commandments binding for the New Testament Christian? Matthew 19, 17. One of the disciples of Jesus, uh, recording the words of the Savior, said, But if you want to enter life, what? Keep the commandments. John 14, 15. Jesus now gives us the definition of love. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. You see, obeying, obeying is an expression of love. You know, when, you, when, you, when, when, when a couple gets married, they exchange vows. Isn't that right? And then those vows are kept based on what? Love. The law is our vow commitment between us and God. And it's kept out of love. You know, before I met my wife, I dated others. But when I vowed myself to my wife, guess what happened to my dating life? That came to an end. My life changed. I'm not the person I was before. In the same way with you and I as Christians. Same exact way. And yet we live in a society where people, even many Christians today say that we don't need God's law. That is crazy. By the way, can you imagine uh, if, if, if our next president stood up and say, you know, the reason why we have so much crime in this world is because of laws. If we just do away with the laws, we don't have any more crime. And yet we, we say that God did away with his own laws. That, that it, is, it, 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 it is the same thing. It's crazy. I want, to, I want you to open your Bibles with me to the book of uh, Matthew. This is a prophecy. In the very end, when God returns, there's going to be a lot of Christians who are in for a big surprise, a big sad surprise. This verse I'm about to read to you was actually the first sermon I ever preached was on this verse. Matthew chapter 7, are you there? Matthew 7. You got to follow carefully what Jesus is saying. These words are in red. They are the Savior's words. If you're there, say amen. Okay, Matthew 7 verse 21. Uh, before I read, who calls Jesus Lord? Is it, is it atheists? Is it, is it Muslims? Is it uh, Hindus? Is it Buddhists? Who calls Jesus Lord? Christians. This message is only to Christians. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven... Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? That means taught in your name. Isn't it good to teach? Yeah. Cast out demons in your name? Isn't it good to cast out demons? And done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Whose law? God's law. They practiced it. You know, <clears throat> I never knew you. The only way for you and I to get to be able to keep the law is to know Jesus in an intimate relationship. But these people had a religious experience. They had their names on the books, but they spent no time with Christ, so they had no power to obey. They weren't walking with Jesus daily. But they had their names on the books. And, the, and they were very active but in the end they're going to find that they were lost. Does that make sense? That is a prophecy that I don't want to be part of, and I know no one else here does either. Let's go back then. Blessed are those that do his what? His commandments. That's Revelation. That's New New Testament. And if you read the rest of that verse, it says that they will have access to the tree of life. Look that text up. Uh, 1 John 2, 3, and 4 says, by this we know that we know him. So here's the evidence. John's about to say, here, I'm about to give you the evidence that you know Jesus Christ. If we keep his commandments, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? Is a liar and the truth is not in him. Any questions on that? Is that pretty clear? All right, let's take a look at 13. In the last days... Whom does the devil especially hate? By the way, if you discover that the devil hates somebody a lot, or a group, don't you want to be part of that group? I mean, do you want a happy devil on your case? you want him to be your buddy? No. If you find out that the the devil hates us over here, I don't have to read the details. I'm heading that way. Watch this. In the last days, whom does the devil especially hate? And the dragon, which is a symbol of the devil, was wroth with the woman, a symbol of the church, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, God's end time faithful. And here's the description. Who what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. My friends, the devil hates people that keep God's commandments. That's all I need to know. Are you with me? That's all I need to know. So I'm not going around telling people that God's law can't be kept. Because that's the group, that's God's people in the end. Number fourteen: Does God, His law, or His plan of salvation ever change? Hebrews thirteen eight says, "Jesus Christ, the same, the what, the same yesterday, today, and forever." Malachi three six: "For I am the Lord; I do not change." And then Matthew five seventeen says, "Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what?" There are people that will look at that text and say, what that means is he came and obeyed for us, so we don't have to now. It's done away with. So let's read it that way. I do not, do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to get rid of it, to, to, to do away with it. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. I'm going to show you two more texts. Open your Bibles to Matthew 3. Okay? Remember, you've got to let the Bible define its own words. Isn't that right? And in Matthew chapter 3, we're going to run into this word, fulfill again. So there are those that teach that say that to fulfill means God kept it, and now we don't have to. Then now it's done away with. But now look at Matthew 3, if you're there, say amen. And I'm going to read verse 15, and it says this. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to what? fulfill our righteousness. So if fulfill means to do away with, Jesus came to do away with righteousness? Did I just stretch you too far? Th- does that make sense? It is a misusage of scripture. I'm going to show you one more, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, in the middle of it, gives a prophecy of the Messiah. In Isaiah 42, there's a very interesting interesting description given to the mission of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42, and it's verse 21. And it says this The Lord is well pleased for his. Notice how it's a capital of his, talking about his Messiah, for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the what? The law and make it what? Honorable. Jesus came to fill the law. He came to reveal to us what it looks like when it's in your heart. Now listen, you may have had some bad experiences with people who are trying to follow Jesus who use the law to hammer you over the head with. I'm sorry that happened. That's a misuse of scripture. Did Jesus ever do that? No. no. Then keep your focus on Christ. But Jesus came to live it and to show us what it looks like in the life. I'm going to end with with a quote here. Many of of you here remember the late Billy Graham, who was uh, the evangelist, won many people to Jesus. Billy Graham ran a, a column in a newspaper that he called My Answer. And he allowed people to ask questions to him. Then he would answer them. Here's a question he got. Some religious people I know tell me that the Ten Commandments are part of the law that do not apply to us today. They say that Christians are free from the law. Is that right? Okay, this is the question asked Billy Graham. How many of you have heard this type of course, this type of rhetoric before? Okay, some religious people I know tell me that the Ten Commandments are part of the law that do not apply to us today. They say that Christians are free from the law. Is that right? Here's his answer. What's the first word? No, no it is not right. And I hope that you will not be misled by these false opinions. It is very important that Christians understand that the Bible means what it's, when it says they are free from the law." It certainly does not mean that they are free from the obligations of the moral law of God and are not at liberty to sin. You see, the word "law" is used in New Testament writers, uh, is used by the New Testament writers in two senses. Sometimes it refers to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament which is concerned about ritual matters, regulations regarding food and drink and things of this kind. Let me pause. In other words, the sacrificial system. And we're going to learn as we go along that all that ended at the cross of Jesus. Okay? So he is distinguishing. He is saying, no, it, we're not talking about, th- th- that's, it, it refers to either the ceremonial or the moral. The ceremonial law was of a passing character and was done away when Christ came, more specifically when he was crucified. We'll see that. From this law, Christians are indeed what? Free. But the New Testament also speaks of the moral law, which is of a permanent, unchanging character and is surmised in the Ten Commandments. Can you say amen to that? He nailed it. But take a look also on the very bottom of that note that I have for you there italicized. Here we have the words... Of uh, John Wesley the great evangelist of yesteryear and in reference to the law this is what he says and there's the reference he says this law is an incorruptible picture of the high and holy one that inhabits eternity it is the face of God what unveiled it is the heart of God disclosed to man is that not beautiful Absolutely. So here's our response to Jesus. Are you thankful that God has an eternal unchanged uh, excuse me, are you thankful that God has an eternal and changeless law? Are you thankful that He saves us by His grace and then gives us the privilege to keep His law through the power of the Holy Spirit the way Jesus did when He walked on earth. And if you're in agreement to that, would you like to let, raise your hand?